0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. There continues to be only one story in the U.S. and the world, and it grows more complicated and concerning by the day. Numbers of cases of the virus are climbing and will certainly accelerate. Credible health experts predict as many as a million deaths in the United States, Businesses and daily life are utterly dislocated. The economy is in free fall, and large portions of the country, including New York and California, are forbidden to leave their houses except for essential functions. We are living out of time and place, isolated from each other with no foreseeable endpoint. This last week, we've seen the federal government and president wake up and realize that the house is on fire. The federal government is now fully engaged, in some cases still a step behind state and local governments which have been imposing extreme measures for extreme times. We want today to focus on government's response at all levels, and at some of the difficult and to date underexplored issues of law and policy that the various measures put into play. Is it, for starters, uncontroversial that governments can respond to an emergency, and no doubt that's where we are? By telling whole cities and states where they can go and when, whom they can associate with, whether they can get medical care, and other similar edicts. And we have the perfect set of guests and former feds to do it three returning guests to the program and one first timer. So, welcome to all. Barbara McQuaid is a professor from practice at the University of Michigan Law School and a legal analyst for MSNBC. She is the former U.S. attorney and before that assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan. Hi, Barb. Hi, Harry. Ann Milgram is a professor of practice and a distinguished scholar at NYU School of Law. She is the former attorney general of New Jersey, as well as a former federal, state, and local prosecutor. And you can hear her frequently with Preet Barara on the Stay Tuned podcast. Anne, thanks very much for coming.
1: Hey Harry, thanks for having me.
0: Asha Rangappa is a senior lecturer at the Yale University Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a CNN contributor. She was an FBI agent in New York City prior to her move to Yale, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. Thanks for returning, Asha. Thanks, Harry. And we're pleased to welcome for the first time Chris Liu. Chris is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. Specializing in Presidential Scholarship. So all of us here today actually have academic posts as well as federal experience. He has, does Chris, an extremely distinguished record in government. He was a former Deputy Secretary of Labor and previous to that, the White House Cabinet Secretary in the Obama administration. He also directed the Obama-Biden transition, and he served as well in the House as the Deputy Chief Counsel on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. You've seen him very frequently on the cable shows during the pandemic. We're really pleased and honored that he can join us today. Hello, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right. So much to try to focus on. The last day has been really thick in New York and California with these shelter-in-place Orders, Which is something different from quarantine, uh, importantly, and would have a different legal justification. You know, everyone has responded cooperatively to date, or most people have. But if this goes on for weeks and months, can it last? Can the United States in 2020 just kind of accept whatever any government official says? Or are we going to see this challenged in court and more kind of disquiet among the population?
2: Well, Harry, I'll chime in. This is Barb. I remember going through some of these tabletop exercises as some of the rest of us have. Back during the time when I was in AUSA, I was the uh, crisis management coordinator for our office and went through some of these trainings that happened post 9 11. And, you know, we envision all these different scenarios, including those relating to a pandemic. And one of the things that we always talked about there is that the government does have the authority to do quite a bit. To lock people down if it wants to. Um, people could certainly, their, their recourse is to file lawsuits with the court. But I think that courts are going to be quite deferential to members of the executive branch who are issuing orders for the basis of public health. To the extent it fringes upon other rights, rights to travel and other kinds of things, I think the court is going to look and balance, um, you know, if it is a constitutional right, it will use strict scrutiny. And in that instance, the court would have to decide whether The government, the executive branch has a compelling governmental interest that's narrowly tailored to achieving that goal. And I think when there is a global pandemic of a deadly disease, they're going to get a lot of deference to require people to shelter in place.
0: I mean, what about that, everybody, you lawyers? Uh, as Barb says, uh, you know, strict scrutiny is, is reserved for infringements of fundamental rights, but right travel, right of association. And there it's called strict in theory, but fatal in, in fact. But how can it be that we have different orders saying different things, but all of them are necessary? I think you're right, Barb. There'll be a compelling interest here. But will all of them, all their moves be considered, you know, the least restrictive alternative, as the lawyers will put it?
1: I would echo what Barb said in a couple of ways. The first is that the power of government is vast in these circumstances. And it's why we've seen many states issue emergency declarations. It's why the president has issued an emergency declaration. It changes the power and the authority of the executives. What I think is, is worth just sort of noting are two separate pieces. The first is the importance of communication. And I think we've seen improved communication, but not anywhere near where I think it needs to be as a rule, because people need to understand why these restrictions exist, what folks are doing, how it's being worked through by government. And I feel like you can't just say to people, we're putting on these extraordinary restrictions, but we're not going to be transparent with you and talk with you every day. And so I think that has improved, but I could not stress enough how important that will be for the government to bring the people with them. And then the other thing I would sort of throw out is that, as I've read about why the government has been so slow to act in asking people to sort of shelter in place, one of the justifications against doing it has been, will the American people comply? And that, you know, it feels so cynical to me. I mean, I have incredible faith that people who have to go to work, obviously, or healthcare professionals, um, people who work in grocery stores, restaurants to deliver, like, there are a number of people who have to go and and we all understand that. But beyond that, and obviously people need to get food and medicine, but beyond that, I think people understand restrictions when they're appropriately, when they're, when they're properly communicated and people understand the potential harm.
3: Yeah. Can I, th- I'll pick up on what Ann said. I mean, there's the, there's the legal authority to do it. And I think that's, it's unquestioned that whether it's a federal or state authorities, they have the ability to shut things down. But what's the practical reality of this? I mean, I, I live in Arlington, Virginia, so we are not under any kind of shelter in place, although most businesses are closed or restaurants are only doing takeout. But, you know, this afternoon I went for a run at my local high school track. And between the track and the infield, there were no joke, 100 people there working out, running. Mm-hmm. Clearly no authority is going to ticket anybody there. But the real question is, is that the longer this goes on, are the American people really just going to are going to stick with this, or they're just going to start defying it in small little ways? And those small little ways are what causes this problem uh, to escalate.
0: That really is uh, the issue. I mean, we had out here in California, Elon Musk saying, "I'm going to keep my factory open," and and kind of inviting a showdown. When tickets here would be for misdemeanor offenses. I do agree with Ann. I think that people are and will rise to the occasion, but. If it does go on for months, you know, it isn't 1918 anymore and all the cases are from way back when, uh, will, will people say enough is enough and begin to chafe or will they be cooperative with as long as government is giving them some explanation? You know, a lot of people are, their, their jobs and livelihood are threatened, not just for this period, but if they, if they're down this long, they might not be able to return to their, to where they had been.
4: This is Asha. I'm I'm just going to jump in here. I mean, it seems to me that you know, there's there's also vast enforcement power here for the states. Uh, even if it implicates fundamental rights, if there's any compelling government interest, it's the police power to protect the health and safety of its citizens. So, I mean, I think the question is how willing are I think the states particularly going to be to escalate their enforcement mechanisms for people who begin to you know shirk their social responsibility. This is a collective action problem. I mean, we're all scholars yeah. here, so you know we have a collective action problem that once you have one or two people relatively speaking so you know some minority of people starting to shirk, the incentive for others to stay in line gets less so and then you just have like this cascading effect. So I wouldn't be surprised if this does go on. You may see an increase of of enforcement because they have to. They can't you know if if this is going to happen together, it has to happen all or or nothing.
2: Asha, you raise a really interesting point. You know, I know we have laws and most of us, I think, seek to comply with the laws, but there's also a lot of social norms that cause us to behave in certain ways. An analogy I used to use um, in trials all the time was the way people behave in traffic, that, you know, as long as everybody is obeying the traffic laws, everybody else follows along. But, you know, you see those signs that say lane closed ahead And if everybody starts getting over, you know, everybody gets over and everybody gets in line. But if just one car zooms along in that closed lane, then another car follows and another car. And before you know it, all the cars are in that closed lane. And so I think we have a duty just to um, sort of model good behavior and and see how, how people do. One thing I'm concerned about is in Detroit and perhaps other cities, the chief of police has said, likely quite candidly, that because of all of the responsibilities of our police officers, I have instructed them to stand down on enforcing many misdemeanor offenses. What is the message that gets sent there? And what behavior does that cause? I have also seen that as a consequence of that, people are buying guns. There has been a, a huge run on gun purchases and one of the facts that they cite is the fact that the mayor that the police chief has said we are not going to be able to enforce all of our misdemeanor offenses and it, you know it goes back to this norm modeling and, and behavior um it may be that law enforcement just has bigger fish to fry than to go out and enforce the quarantine and so it behooves the rest of us to be on our best behavior but if that doesn't happen uh, in mass, I don't know that we have the ability to go out and round people up.
3: Let's also remember that when you're dealing with a pandemic, a pandemic doesn't respect borders. And so you see this playing out pretty dramatically in Florida right now, where the governor has basically said, look, I'm not going to close the beaches in Florida. There are 600 some miles of beaches in Florida. I'm going to leave it up to local officials to close. Well, that's fine. But you know, people can go to the beaches that are open and it just, all you're doing is shifting a problem to another place, and so it speaks more broadly to the need to have more uniform standards. Because as long as you have one town, one state, one region that's doing something different, this will continue
0: to spread. I mean, it does speak to that, and also, you know, we all saw the pictures of everybody cavorting on on the beaches at, in Florida. It makes people think. Well, if they're kind of along the lines of what Barb was just saying, if they're doing it, why? can't i and of course the orders are coming down kind of pell-mell from at the state level the local level the the federal level and they are they are different in different communities and i wanted to direct this especially to you cuz you've been a federal state and local prosecutor do you think that there's it would be kind of miraculous but is there effective coordination right now among federal state and local authorities? Do we sort of know who's in charge and who should be?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And so when I was AG, we did a lot of you know, obviously, homeland security work, but also um, preparedness work, and that is generally done at all these different levels. And we did our tabletop exercises where you sit in a room and sort of play out scenarios. We generally did those as a state, but we would have someone from the FBI there. We would ha- so we would have people from different levels of government. So I think the short answer is that. There should be, and there likely is, within states, a fair amount of coordination at the state, local, and federal level. The issue will be, and the thing that concerns me a little bit, is that we have... You know, crossing state lines, as Chris just said, you've got one rule in one place, another rule in in the next place, and that kind of variance can be very difficult to work through. Particularly where there could still be some bureaucracy, or people they're not necessarily on board with all the same restrictions. And so, you know, I want to say that there is coordination, but this is going to depend a lot on the people. Who are on the ground making it happen. And frankly, there's also, in my view, still a real issue with the federal government owning, uh, you know, owning more of this and taking more responsibility, not taking control from the necessarily the states and the governors, but being willing to, you know, do some things like invoking the Emergency Preparedness Act and doing more work around things like getting, protective, um, personal equipment for healthcare providers, masks, gowns, things like that. And so that's where it's really going to matter because the last thing any of us want to see is a bidding war between Florida and New York and California over protective masks. And so there's a way in which this is, this is stress testing institutions that I, I don't know we've ever fully stress tested because it's been like you had nine eleven, that was in New York and, you know, obviously touched New Jersey. And then you had Washington DC and Virginia, but it wasn't all 50 states. And so it's just, this feels to me uncharted. And so I worry a lot about coordination, getting everyone on the same page, and then also frankly, having real leadership in the states and at the federal level to make it work.
0: You've headed an office, so Barb and I, and it's a miracle when you go a few months without some kind of conflict. We've already seen the c d c and h h s kind of being crosswise and on the bidding war you say that you that you mentioned the feds are are out after after the president says you have to get your equipment on your own. The federal government then is outbidding them because it has more money, and that's that that can't sit too uh easily. What about the federal government? We know in large part because of Trump, they were sort of asleep at the switch or not taking much action early on that would have been very important, but that was then. Uh, we know in the last week, certainly Trump is trying to portray a fully engaged president and federal government. Is that matched on the ground? Do we now have at least every level of government um, rowing in the same direction?
2: This is Barb. I think it's going to take a little while for the effects of the federal response to roll out. Typically, it is the first responders, the locals who are in the front lines. You see people like Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, who is really out there at ground zero on the front lines. And I think the locals have a big role to play. And then you know the governors at the state level are um, putting the structure around that and providing some of the local orders about you know, shelter in place and those kinds of things. And really the role of the federal government is the very big picture stuff, the funding, um, sending out enough funds so that uh, the governors have the sufficient equipment that they can roll out to the locals who are on the front line. So I know here in Michigan we um, currently do not have enough respirators and medical supplies, for example, and we're waiting to get those things. The hope is that those resources will come from the federal government. But you know, even having enough money doesn't mean you'll have enough of the equipment that you need. There are reports of shortages in the country, not having enough ventilators and respirators and those kinds of things. And so um, I think that it may be some lag time before we get all of the things we need. And that's really the role of the federal government is to provide that that support the funding the equipment and the other things that the locals need to execute their strategies
0: although you're right it's not simply a matter of money i mean the ultimate will be if the federal government and this would be the ultimate legal too kind of commandeers companies and directs them to begin making ventilators and the like which uh, there's some reason to think they have nominal authority to do but but would businesses go for it. Chris, I just want to ask you briefly, because you had some experience with the Trump administration and pandemics in in this transition exercise. Can you just give us the quick story on that? And what, if anything, it it taught you?
3: You know, as part of the transition of power uh, in January, 2017, Uh, we did a tabletop exercise with the incoming Trump folks a week before Inauguration Day. It's similar to the one that the outgoing Bush people did with us in January of 2009. And there were about 30 Obama officials there, 30 Trump officials. And we did a tabletop exercise to game out how the country government comes together to deal with a major domestic incident. And the three incidents that were chosen were a hurricane, a cyber attack, And a pandemic. And what's interesting about the pandemic exercise was the fact pattern, which is a hurricane, I'm sorry, a pandemic that uh, starts in Asia and Europe. So the United States has a little bit of lag time. It's a pandemic that can transmit efficiently from humans to humans. And there are issues about lab capacity and vaccine availability and ventilators, uh, travel restrictions. And this was an exercise that was meant to acquaint the Trump people with, you know, how when you deal with a situation like this, the whole of government has to come together and why you need to coordinate not just federal agencies, federal and state officials, why you need to have coordinated messaging, why you need to engage the private sector. So it was a preview of what they would face. And what is striking is that of the 30 or so people that were there from the Trump team, uh, about two-thirds have, have left government since then. Um, and so even if the lessons were imparted to them, uh, they're no
0: longer here to help implement them. Mm, bring back the, the deep state. I wanted to return for a second to the the, the question of enforcement through possible criminal Penalties because I, you know, these, these are violations of the, of the orders typically are punishable by some time in prison. Now, of course, prisons are going to be, you know, there's going to be a prison that where the virus will spread like wildfire. A prison or an immigration center would be quite a place to incubate the virus. And then just in general, I wonder if anyone has thoughts about the, the impact that the, these orders and the fighting of the pandemic will have on the criminal justice system overall? Are, are there ways in which, you know, the a, um, the rubber will hit the road in a very difficult setting?
4: Harry, can I jump in here? Um, I'll leave the second part of your question, but it seems to me that in terms of any kind of enforcement um, apparatus that fines would be the way to go, because as, as Barb mentioned, I don't think right now what you want are you know, arrests and processing of more defendants, crowding prisons, increasing social contact. Fines can really achieve the same, in my opinion, um, if you're really talking about people engaging in infractions of things like curfews or or gatherings and things like that. And it's really going to be the more, you know, have a more deterrent effect when people are very concerned about their finances right now as well. I I think fines have been very effective in curbing things like texting while driving, for example. If you put a steep enough price tag on it, people will, I think, think twice. You know, it's such
1: an interesting question because I I don't think that and you know I oversaw the Camden police department when I was AG and so I've thought a lot about some of these issues. I can't imagine that law enforcement will do significant enforcement on individuals. I think it may be a different question if we start talking about whole businesses, for example, like the one in California we just talked about refusing to shut down. They may they may feel compelled to take action, but I don't see a lot of individual enforcement particularly because you don't want to put more people into jails and prisons. The challenge with fines and fees is that they're so regressive on the poor and the majority of the criminal justice system um, does not have resources. And so I worry a lot about I, you know, and I, I think Asha makes a great point because, because certainly the actual arresting is not going to necessarily be an option in many circumstances. And then the question is, what are the other options? Some countries do day fines, meaning people pay what they can. So there is an impact, but I, I do think we have to be really careful with people who are already struggling and are now going to struggle paycheck to paycheck. Not to put more financial harm on on top of that. So I, I don't know. I, I want to think about it more, but I, I think it raises like a really complicated question for government of how do you enforce rules, which you have to do, and essentially for the safety and well being of all of us in a community. Um, but at the same time, not do it in a way that that causes significant harm.
0: Right. I mean, I was also thinking of collateral damage to the criminal justice system. I mean, if courts close down, it's one thing on the civil docket, but what happens to, say, you know, speedy trial rights or you know, th- that's a real clash of constitutional uh, commands.
2: Well, this is Barb. With regard to the speedy trial rights, you know, I, I actually called up Jim Letton when this first started, he was the U.S. attorney in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. And I remember being at some training that Jim led to talk about what you do when these kinds of catastrophic incidents occurred. And one of the things he talked about was getting a blanket order from the chief judge to adjourn all trials and count as excludable delay the time under the Speedy Trial Act. That can be done for a certain amount of time. There is ultimately constitutional protection under the Barker versus Wingo factors that you look at about whether a defendant is prejudiced by having their speedy trial rights delayed. Certainly, if someone is in custody, there is that prejudice to that person as well. But that's what was done in Katrina. They had based that on a similar Order that was entered after 9 11, and one of the other orders they had after Katrina was an order that allowed them to waive venue and try their cases elsewhere. I don't think that one's going to work this time because everywhere in the United States we're dealing with the same challenge.
4: If the National Guard is called in, what what role do they play in this? I mean, obviously they're there to kind of bring order, but.
1: Yeah, as a rule, they would not enforce state criminal laws. For example, generally, they would um, be they go in under uh, as, this is as a rule. Now, again, you know, we start to talk about situations where you know, what if the government commands companies to do things? What if they commandeer hotels to build makeshift hot- hospitals? For example, that could change the nature of this. But as of in this sort of standard emergency, they they sort of form they're a support network. And so it's facilitating a lot of operations and logistics within states. And so, you know, think about it as like after Katrina helping, you know, rescue efforts, helping to run shelters, helping to get supplies and, and that sort of stuff they they're, they were not acting, you know, I haven't seen them acting as like quasi law enforcement per se, but more as like logistical, um, almost like military in some ways, sort of acting as support and building infrastructure. So that's what I would look to. Again, if we end up in a situation where, you know, I personally don't think we're far from this. If you, the hospital crisis is real and people will need to receive treatment in order to survive. Some people, not everyone, but this will be a very important thing that we have capacity and we, we simply, may not if, if the crisis uh, continues to worsen. And so I think it is a real thing. Hospitals could be built in many different ways. I mean, we've seen, um, I think in Seattle, they're building one in a soccer field, but obviously it'd be a lot quicker to commandeer a state, you know, a, a public university dorm, existing hotel. And so that's where I think you could see the National Guard doing more and more. But but at this point, and it's worth saying, right now, like in New York, where the governor called to the National Guard, New York is still in charge of the operational decisions. The guard is there in a support role.
0: And legally, I mean, they're supposed to stay, you know, there's a, there's legal prohibitions against them doing law enforcement. I think this hospital problem is probably the most severe thing on the, on the horizon. And if the numbers rise to the extent they're predicted literally there won't be hospital beds only for the corona folks this is touching basically every national and international aspect of our lives what about does it appear as if russia is trying in some ways to capitalize on the chaos we we've read a little bit about a, a, a disinformation campaign what what is that uh, about and how ominous is it
4: well i think that we're seeing more Russian disinformation, but I think, you know, it's also being amplified by people in our own government. Um, one thing that's been really interesting is the narrative. We haven't seen it circulated as much, I think, in in the U.S. information space as much, but that the coronavirus is, you know, a biological weapon developed by the United States. And this echoes an operation that the KGB did during the Cold War, which sought to blame AIDS virus on the U.S. government. But I think like overall, what you're going to see is an attempt to scapegoat the origin of the virus, you know, on to to make people mistrust government Actors, and so, and we, we're seeing China do the same thing with trying to blame the U.S. as as having developed this, and, and then obviously internally there's a capitalizing on the fear, and you know people wanting someone to blame by using racism um, and the attempt to call it the Chinese coronavirus um, and using the shield that, well, you know, it originated in China and, and that this is the reason that they can use this blank blanket stigmatizing term. Again, it's very hard to look at this issue in the United States with, with, without taking into account Trump's role in kind of facilitating a lot of the kinds of disinformation that's going out. But it's a ripe climate. I mean, what disinformation does is it capitalizes on emotions, and particularly fear and anger. And so obviously, a pandemic offers a very fertile ground uh, to seed a lot of conspiracy theories and, you know, blaming on particular groups.
0: Do you have any sense, Tasha, of the specific kinds of disinformation that that is spreading?
4: The ones that I just mentioned. I mean, I think that from kind of so you have different actors, right? So you know, you th- there are there's a kind of disinformation that nation state actors are engaging in, like Russia or China, and then there are kind of less sophisticated actors that are whether it's the alt right or or um, other groups that are trying to further their own agenda using this crisis as a vehicle. So yeah, I mean, I think you're going to see the conspiracy theories from other countries that this was something that was created by the U.S., you know, and targeting groups and trying to kill them, um, same way they did with uh, suggesting that the AIDS virus was uh, trying to be used to kill Africans, for example. Um, but I think it's kind of the the same story in the US racism. I mean, racism is a very uh, easy thing to to seed, get people worked up. And um, I think you see that happening uh, with the Republican Party, it helps them to create an other to deflect the issue. And I think that it's important to understand these tactics because as soon as the media starts focusing on for example, you know, oh, Trump called it the Chinese coronavirus, you are facilitating the the whole script that that is intended by this disinformation. It's a it's a tactic called reflexive control that you throw something out there, you know the response is going to be a particular way and then you can kind of create this narrative where it's the liberals who are trying to Protect China. (laughs) Um, I think that's, you know, it, it gets just kind of crazy. So more importantly, there can be disinformation, of course, on the mechanics of how the virus works itself. And I think we're seeing that play out in the sense that you have this partisan divide, I think less so now over the last week, but just on whether this was even a threat. That people need to be taking seriously. So you had, for example, the governor of Oklahoma, you have now the governor of Florida, who are really just aren't taking action. And I think partly because there's become a partisan identity that's now attached to whether or not you take this seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, my I think there has been maybe it's abated now a kind of a red blue divide where a lot of the red states and people in them were were calling this kind of Democrat or liberal hype or or whatever you you know and we're trying to show that they to show it by going to large you know group uh, gatherings. Is it your sense that that's still in play?
4: I think that it's still in play mainly because I don't think that there has been a consistent message from Trump in terms of really taking this seriously, really articulating a cohesive message, demonstrating that he actually understands the magnitude and complexity of the problem. People will, if they have very strong tribal identities, they don't adopt beliefs based on the accuracy of the facts. They base it on whether it signals that they belong to a particular tribe. OK, so believing that the virus is a hoax, this this flies in the face of, you know, the graphs, the charts, everything that they're seeing. But if Trump says it's a hoax, then they have to stay on Team Trump and they have to, you know, convince themselves that that's true. So I think that it's incredibly dangerous when he is kind of setting those norms, because he is basically creating the belief system that's going to be adopted by the people of who want to signal their belonging as as loyalists of Trump. And I have to be honest with you, I don't know how others feel about this. I I don't believe he he understands this problem. I don't think he can get his mind around it. You know, yesterday he he said something to the effect of, you know, we had no idea that there would be a shortage of ventilators. And it's like this is this is the central freaking problem. I mean, this is the whole flatten the curve thing. This is why Um, But, you know, maybe there's some 5D chess going on. And my only explanation is that he he cannot mentally grasp it.
3: Yeah, I will. Let me chime in. I mean, Asha, you had a fantastic tweet on this yesterday where you said he just isn't capable of understanding it because it involves data and graphs and projections and conceptual thinking. And I think the problem you have is we don't need the Russians to sow chaos because he's doing it himself. He's done a 180 from the way he's talked about. Uh, this uh, virus for the past two months. Um, Every day he goes to the White House press briefing room and contradicts not only what the vice president is saying, but what his medical experts are saying. And it's no wonder that people don't really understand how serious a risk that is, what the likelihood of Antivirals or vaccines are, you know, what kind of respirators they should use or not use, who should get tested, who should not get tested, because there's this confusion of messages. And you contrast that. You look at the way that Governor Cuomo, Governor Inslee, Governor Newsom are talking about it, and they're really speaking very directly to the people. They're taking decisive action. They're following the lead of their experts. And it, and this is really kind of a moment for them to show their leadership in the face of this, this vacuum. And so look, there's a lot of things that need to happen on the ground in terms of what the response is. But the most important thing that this president is squandering uh, is public trust and his credibility. And it's hard for people to really, and, and I think that's what's creating so much of this anxiety in the
0: American people right now. I really think that's true. I mean, I think leadership cons- in this kind of setting consists in large part of, of clear and accurate communication. And not only is he not up to the the task of, of knowing, you know, scientifically or medically, but his whole uh, instinct as a leader is to try to say everything is perfect at all times. And he always knew it was a pandemic to, to, nev- to give no quarter in terms of criticism of his own or anything about his government. And that I- inevitably is leading to his making, you know, terrific m- mistakes of, of fact and false claims. And, and then, you know, so many people just can't rely on what he's saying.
1: I would, add, um, I would add Governor DeWine to that list of governors who I think right. have been very strong and decisive. And frankly, I think he, he did a lot for the state of Ohio by acting so quickly. And I would say this, Asha, I would love to disagree with you on this, because I feel like at these times in the world, like there's nothing that I would like to see more than strong, consistent, thoughtful leadership. But I cannot disagree on this. I, I feel the same way, and I, I really – I would – take any, like, there's nothing I would like more than, than for us to be wrong on this one.
4: Uh, Completely. And, and just to add to that, you know, it's, it's also, it's like this perfect storm where this is the one kind of crisis and threat where the worst, you know, aspects of how Trump governs, like, really can make the situation deadly. Um, the distrust and dismissing of of expertise and particularly scientific expertise, the willingness to blame everything on a deep state conspiracy as opposed to looking at the situation as it's presented itself um nepotism I mean, can we just like remember that part of the uh, strategy for how to deal with this was outsourced to jared kushner's sister in law's father on Facebook. This is the team, guys. This is the team that is deciding how we are going to approach this. So you know, it's it. I completely agree. I mean, I you know, if I could like transplant some part of my brain to Trump and help him like deal, but I, I think that there's also just these other weird behavioral patterns that are incredibly unfortunate for this particular crisis. And can I just respond? This is Barb to something that Ann said. She was complimenting Governor
2: DeWine in Ohio, and I know he's done a lot of good things, but when he canceled the primary election, my first instinct was to be very suspicious and to say, Well, here we go. Uh we're gonna it's gonna start, delaying the Democratic primary in hopes of then delaying the November election. And I certainly don't attribute to him any nefarious purpose, but could we see a delay in the election i think we could see a delay in the november election but i think by by constitution we can't have a delay in the end of president trump's term in january do you all agree with that
0: so I agree uh, but and um, of course you know what happens if Trump tries to search to the contrary talk about a, a crisis on top of a of a crisis but uh, you know I think th- that's the first thing people thought about with the with the primaries oh my god could this could he try to exploit it in that way um, we're near out of time I just I want to touch for just a second even though it's out of our belly a little on the economic bailout is is it enough to just throw money at everyone. When, when you think how broad the effects are, even a trillion dollars seems like a possible Band-Aid solution. Does that seem as if it's being approached with good thought and experience for best policies?
3: I don't think so. I mean, I think, look, money is part of it. And if we're going to do money, then we, it needs to be targeted at those people, the hourly wage workers who have been laid off from work, uh, who may not get back to work for a while, people without childcare, small businesses. Uh, it should certainly be means tested. I would rather do what Senator Schumer is proposing, which is to extend unemployment insurance benefits, shore up food stamps and other social safety net. But I think the problem is we don't really have a Precedent for this. It's almost like a hurricane is hitting the entire country at one time yeah. and it's not moving. And if this is a two week shutdown, I think the country comes back, bounces back pretty quickly. If this is two months, you know, all bets are off at that point. So we may be going through several rounds of, uh, of stimulus packages.
0: All right. And there's an end for now. I think this is a top, both this and the November election are going to be coming up in coming weeks and, and also especially the hospital capacity. All right. We're at the end of this episode. So we want to close with a five words or fewer question that actually picks up on what Barb was just saying. This question comes from Gunnar Sagerström think I'm pronouncing it right, who asks? do you think there's any possibility that the November election will be postponed? So five words or fewer feds. Well,
2: I'll go first. Regardless, Trump's out in January.
1: <laughs> and I would say, um, this is Anne, I would, I would say uh, send paper ballots out now.
4: Yeah, this is Asha. I feel like we're writing a haiku. I think so, too. I would say we have time to prepare.
3: Uh, this is Chris. I will say too soon to
0: tell. Okay. With a word left over. Very good for your debut. I'll say Trump may try, <laughs> but no. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much to Ann, Barb, Asha, and Chris. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard... Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts, and please take a moment to rate and review this episode. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content, and you can check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Patton. David Lieberman and Rosie Phillips are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks as always to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.